Hello everyone and welcome to Freedom Sold here, episode 10. Today we have on our first return guest, Thomas, from uh, Republic of Morality. He runs the Instagram account, Republic of Morality. Uh, if you have been on the previous episode, you know about him, but if you haven't, I will tell you just a little bit about him. So, he's from uh, the, sorry. I don't know if you want me to tell you where tell people where you're from, so I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's no issue. I mean, uh, I'm from Greece originally, you know. Yes. Which is a really really cool if you are into uh, Greek history at all. So uh, Thomas is from Greece, and he runs this account. On his account, he talks about traditionalism, uh, traditional conservatism. Um, and kind of how those ideas could integrate into modern society. Uh, today, we will be, he'll be on here to discuss some of the European politics, as well as American and Caribbean politics, uh, particularly the current events and underlying causes. Well, so welcome back, Thomas. We're very happy to have you back. I'm glad to be here again, you know. This was a, a long time being planned, and uh, I'm glad it bore fruits right here. That's uh, what I have to say. I mean, we yep. can get to the topics if you want. If you have anything to say, you know, go right ahead, of course. Yeah, um, so I think that uh, maybe the first thing we can talk about right off the bat, and we may have to come back to it because it is the kind of the underlying implications are such a big thing uh, but it's a it's a current thing that's unfolding right now and it's being watched very closely is this situation in Cuba where people are protesting the Cuban government and uh, if you follow Republic of Morality then you've probably seen Thomas has spoken about this a little bit on kind of his thoughts uh, so Thomas maybe for people who haven't seen that would you like to kind of recap what you're thinking about these protests in Cuba. Of course, uh, absolutely. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, the protests by the people in the island itself, you know, they don't bother me. They don't particularly bother me. Uh, it's well known that Cuba has a lot of uh, economic and other issues. Uh, the, the left will talk about how it's from the embargo, the right rejects that it's the embargo, they, they blame it on the sort of socialist regime on the island. I'm not here to talk about whether it's the embargo or the regime, I'd say it's a little bit of both. When you put it down to it though, what I don't like is the American interference and intervention in the island. Hmm. Now technically, you know, people can point to the Monroe Doctrine, they can point to a couple of other um, sort of ideas of uh, that make the U.S. the sort of the, the guarantor of every country in Central and South America as well as North America. But really, I don't think this um, this is, as far as I'm concerned, very naked imperialism, and it really has to it, it has a negative effect when you think about it tactically. The biggest issue for me uh, as a person right now is uh, I'm trying to showcase the issues with uh, liberal democracy that while liberal democracy claims to be about uh, rights and freedoms and allowing individuals to choose and you know getting people to vote and doing things through the vote 
in reality you have a gigantic apparatus behind the scenes that really controls the candidates you are able to vote for that uh, controls which candidates get support and which don't economically and uh, and politically uh, that manufactures scandals out of thin air to uh, remove people that are inconvenient to it and in when push comes to solve and every other uh, defense doesn't work they do resort to violence like every other regime everywhere else hmm. The fact that they hide the violence uh, much better, that they, you know, they they're better at PR, doesn't really interest me, because it, it doesn't matter how hidden the violence is if the violence is there, well, it's there. And one of the things uh, that I hate hearing is that well, liberal democracy doesn't require violence, unlike communism or fascism. When you get down to it, at, at its basis, like every other political system, it requires violence to function at its core. That's the basis of there ever being a state of any kind. Unfortunate, but it is what it is. It's a, it's a sort of an iron law of human governance. Now, the issue here is people on the matter of Cuba are essentially asking me to choose between uh, one uh, type of, uh, one pile of, well, garbage and another pile of garbage. Uh, I, why should I choose between, uh, I don't know, liberal, democratic, capitalist garbage and, uh, I don't know, some sort of socialist, communist, uh, state garbage? That is not a, a binary choice. And I shouldn't be expected to uh, choose any of the two. So obviously I'm not going to go with the United States. I'm not going to condone any sort of intervention in Cuba. Uh, my, my stance is pretty much let Cuba be. And people, you know, they've accused me, I've gotten that accusation that, well, by saying let it be, I'm supporting the socialist regime there. And the simple reality is that if you look at it tactically, uh, communism is dead. And there isn't a superpower in the world that supports uh, communism anymore, like there was with the Soviet Union back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So essentially what you're getting here is uh, you have this tiny island stuck with a sort of a remnant regime, a sort of a rump state that kind of exists. And th this, this state is effectively they're hell-bent on wiping it out. But what will wiping it out uh, do for me? Well, it only entrenches uh, sort of liberal capitalist uh, democracy everywhere else in the world. And I don't view these things as good. I view them as actually very horrific when you dig down to the details. So obviously I wouldn't want to expand something that is horrific. So I really don't understand the arguments of the right. And that, that was really my point that I was making. And I got pretty, uh, I got a lot of people in my audience that were uh, pretty upset at that take. And it was kind of scary for me to see how the, the right wing that has been sort of denouncing foreign entanglements for like uh, four or five years straight now in the United States. I've been talking about how, oh, you know, let Russia be, let Syria be, let, uh, let's go out of Afghanistan, let's... Uh, you know, let's live alone Libya, now that we've destroyed it, you know, they've suffered enough, no need to uh, screw with them anymore. Uh, it's amazing how that right does a complete turnaround when it comes to Cuba. It was really uh, frightening to see, because I thought that these people had known better, they learned something. Maybe I rambled a little too much, I don't know, what do you say about that? Hmm. No, that's good. And I just want to get back... Um... Briefly, you know, if you say China is a communist superpower, they're, I mean, you, they're not even really communist. They're kind of uh, extremely totalitarian capitalists. 
Um, That's a great point. And yeah. I, I, I think that we've, I believe on this podcast we have discussed this either with um, Thomas or maybe on the Anacron episode, I forget. Um, but China is kind of, it's the eventual kind of end state of neoliberalism. If it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily what uh, current liberals in the classical sense would want, but if you get into this neoliberal distortion of liberalism, that's kind of where you end up with with China. Hmm. Um, but with that, with that just kind of said, in case anybody was wondering about that, um, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's a great point you made there. Um, my my personal opinion is kind of the same. I'm, I mean, I've said this before, I'm very non-interventionist, uh, both because I, I think it's bad for the country that you're intervening in for the most part, uh, but I also think it's usually bad for the country that's intervening. It's usually just a waste of resources. And yeah, it's a waste of resources, really, human and monetary. Uh, so I, I don't think it's really usually justified except in maybe very select circumstances. Um, but with that said, I, I mean, I support the Cubans in the sense that, uh, you know, if they if they want to change their government, I think that they're they should be free to do that. But um, I, I think that, like, kind of, like Thomas has said, I, I have kind of limited hope that they will actually be in a significantly better and a significantly better ch uh, place after changing their government. So, no, I, I think that it's it's possible that they kind of overthrow their current communist government, and if they are very diligent about um, creating a good a good state, then it's possible. But they could also kind of fall into this neoliberal pit that uh, many kind of many first world Western countries have currently fallen into. Yeah. It is interesting what you were saying before, Thomas, about liberal democracy. How, you know, it's like, theoretically, you know, the power is much more decentralized to the people, but in the end, the idea of choice, and actually I've been thinking about, like, free choice, like free will recently, too. Well, that's, that could be a big tangent, but like the illusion of like choice like well I just lost my thought but uh, uh, I think I, I got your point and I could uh, I could help you maybe get back on it if you want yeah you know for example we see um, we have the most advanced grasp on human psychology that we've ever had in history right I mean, is anybody so naive as to think that uh, actors with malicious intentions who have the sort of the political power and the resources, the economic resources to utilize this knowledge, wouldn't utilize it? These people, right. they make advertisements, they do all sorts of things. Obviously, you know, they, they, they understand how to game the system. They understand how to game human psychology, at least to some extent. Now, we don't know everything about the human mind or how it works. And, you know, something that works on a few people might not work on others for uh, reasons that we don't understand. But, you know, these people have mastered the manipulation of the human psyche. And that, that's part of the problem. And, the, you know, it comes down to what you're saying about the illusion of choice. They, they present you the illusion and they, they know how to make it real enough 
so you don't get that it's an illusion. But if you actually dig deep and you think critically about it, you do find the, the illusion there. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, if you want to have like a kind of a tangible example about how this happens, you have stuff as, you kind of as blatant in the United States as, you know, in the Democratic primaries, they have these super delegates that are basically just, you know, people in the party making large portions of the decision on who becomes their nominee. And I think um, how they, the, the way that this is kept kind of from, because if, if everybody kind of decided, if everybody sort of realized and understood that kind of there, there was much less impact and kind of their votes than, than, their, than they thought there was, I think there would be a lot more discontent and people would be much more interested in trying to change, uh, make, you know, re real dramatic changes to the system, not just electing, you know, a slightly different person. Um, but I think uh, that one way this, one way this is kind of kept covered up is just kind of by the control of language. And I think uh, this is one thing that uh, Orwell gets right in 1984. It, 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 in 1984 gets flack largely because a lot of people just over overuse references from it. Yeah. But I think that the distortion of language is a really big deal. So, you know, if people don't under, you know, if people are using certain slogans and, you know, using words in a different way than other people are, then a lot more people can be kind of happy with the same quote unquote ideas that are in reality much different. Yeah, uh, no, that's uh, that's an amazing point. Uh, I'll add to that that uh, you know, 1984. I mean, uh, I'm trying to kind of uh, make my own post on the account, but I'll need to read uh, all of the sort of the dystopian literature from the 20th century because I want to do like a sort of a mega compilation to see what mm -hmm. they got right and what they got wrong, and how it might be possible to sort of restructure the the different dystopian sort of predictions of the 20th century in such a way as to create essentially the current state of affairs that we have and show to people how these people sort of predicted that. But yeah, with Orwell specifically, I mean, for example, he predicted the forever wars, you know, that, uh, that America would just be marching into countries just to rile up sort of nationalistic zeal. Mm -hmm. We have that with Afghanistan, we have that with Iraq, we have that with Libya. I mean, you, the, the list goes on and on and on, really. And all of these wars, I mean, you know, this is what is scary to me about the, the sort of the right-wing opinion on Cuba, right? You had all these people who had rightfully become skeptical of the government sort of declaring wars and interventions everywhere. And suddenly these same sorts of people are getting mad at Joe Biden for not launching an intervention into Cuba. I mean, I'm, I'm, right. I'm laughing right now because it's, oh, it's so sheerly ridiculous and scary that, uh, you know, I, I just can't fathom it. You know, you're, you're seeing the sort of the illusion at work right there. Yeah, I think that people, is, is, people almost saw through the illusion while these wars were in territories whose governments they saw as maybe more neutral. But as yeah. soon as they kind of saw the government as something that was uh, on the opposition, 
then all of a sudden they support war again. Um, and at the end of the day, kind of, you know, any of these governments might be bad. I'm going to, I mean, I'm maybe going to ramble for a second about interventionism. Um, no problem. Any of these governments may be bad or good, uh, but is it is it really the responsibility of your country to change that government? And my personal opinion is that it's it's really not. Uh, now, if if you personally want to make changes in that country, uh, my my opinion is that you should actually move there and try to make changes from within. But I think. Uh, just kind of invading countries and delegating, delegating, um, well not delegating, but just imposing changes on those countries is, uh, I mean, it's harmful probably both to the country you're invading and to yourself, and it's, it's really kind of arrogant. You don't really, I mean, even, you may or may not be right about those changes, but, you know, what makes you so much more qualified? Than, than the people of that country to decide. No, I, I think that's uh, I think that's spot on. I'd say. Uh, really, I mean, I, I covered this in a, in the previous discussion as well. But uh, the basis of my thought is uh, each people in an area sort of uh, deciding uh, their affairs for themselves. And, you know, I take it even more radically than simply nations, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not simply talking about countries. No, I'm talking about regions within countries. I'm talking about uh, little townships within regions. Uh, you know, the, the, there would be some areas that would be the purview of the region only, or the, the nation state as a nation state. But the point is to sort of make, uh, make these purviews as limited as possible so as to allow the actual people in each area to decide affairs for themselves. And you're going to yeah. get widely diverse countries, but you know, they're all going to be generally happy because they'll have great political autonomy, essentially. And it's a, yeah, why, why would you think that you know best than the people who live in an area? You know, that's the base of it. Right. That's the arrogance, as you pointed out. Yeah. Right, that's, that's kind of, I mean, I've, I think on the same episode and probably others, I've kind of suggested the same or, you know, kind of agreed to the same thing of uh, decentralizing as much as possible, delegating as much authority to, you know, smaller units of people. Um, personally, I think the ideal town size is probably in the maybe 250 to 1,000 person range. Um, and that has to do with other uh, issues of building community that are probably too broad to get into right now. Um, uh, but I think that if a lot of decisions are made at that kind of size of people, that the representation will be pretty good and and that the community will be good for other reasons. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, like there's this kind of progressive idea that, I mean, the, kind of the ultimate progressive idea is that if a progressive person is running the world, the entire, every progressive person basically wants to run the entire world the way they, they think they should. You know, that's kind of the progressive end goal. That's their that's their utopia, even if they wouldn't say they believe in a real utopia. That's their kind of utopia. Um, and if you yeah. think... Now, you may say there's these horrible atrocities happening in other parts of the world. Shouldn't we do something about them? And um, I'm not going to say you shouldn't do anything about them. Um, 
like I, I briefly mentioned earlier, a few minutes ago, I think if you really want to do something about them, you should move there, kind of become a part of that town culture and whatever, and try to change it from within. Um, because in that situation, you, you're not this outside person imposing changes. You're actually, you have an understanding of, you know, maybe why these people are opposed. Um, so that's, that's what I would say, but just imposing changes, even if they are, ab you know, even if you're making an absolutely morally right change per se, that's, I don't think that's the morally right way to do it. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting and kind of a rare quality that you can both think that believe that you're absolutely right and yet not seek to I don't want to say enforce but I guess push it everywhere and it's kind of similar like the idea like like democracy is is kind of seems decentralized at first glance because you know decentralizes it to like each person that's eligible to vote but in the end you could um well, I guess it depends, you know, whether it's like a, like a national, you know, kind of like a Congress, more like a representative democracy. But you could have like your democracy, and then it ends up just being like electing like national officials that still wield great amounts of, uh, you know, power over in the, on the federal level. So you know, it would be really interesting to see that kind of decentralization. There's always kind of that grass on grass is greener on the other side, way of thinking. Cause, you know, especially like the big like big companies that are way bigger than just one of these little towns, and how would they be, you know, dealt with? Uh, and then it's kind of, I guess, to chain your action, because you know, if you think you know what's right, why not you know, semi-democratically you know maybe according to the system, you know, expand state power somehow, just a little bit to get what you want, assuming you think it's right. That was kind of a ramble, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's well, like a, I, I just an interesting quality of like, you know, self-control, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, self-control, it's, it's, it's important. Yeah, I mean, um... You know, when you mentioned about how uh, you could have people, say, believing that they, they know the truth, but simultaneously not really enforcing it. I mean, it really comes down, I think, to something that I do believe, which is that uh, different cultures um, hold different uh, manifestations of the truth to a wider or lesser extent. Uh, to, and essentially, these different uh, pieces of the truth manifest themselves in different ways due to the sort of different cultural understanding. And, you know, I have this mainly as my, uh, my thought process when it comes to uh, religion and spirituality, as to why, for example, you find the same customs, uh, the same sort of religious and spiritual customs in, like, Britain in 5000 BC, and then you also find them in, like, a population in China in 5000 BC. And you're wondering, well, you know, that population in China and that population in Britain have no connection with each other. The only thing that that is common, that they have in common, is that they're both human, and that they're both human communities, and yet they've both sort of um, found the, the same sort of fundamental truth, 
but they've colored it differently due to their uh, unique uh, cultural, uh, political, sort of uh, geological and geographical, as well as a sort of a, a circumstantial understanding of of that matter, of that uh, of that sort of prism of the truth, and that's what I have to say. I mean, that's why it's particularly wrong to enforce your worldview on somebody else. Because they might be recognizing a truth you're not seeing, or they might very well be recognizing the same truth that you have, but through a different lens. And at the end, if the society works, I mean, what is really the issue at the end of the day? If it works for the people who are in the society, how could anybody say differently? And I mean, if you look at Cuba right now, you know, uh, at least half the people there are fighting furiously against the protesters to preserve essentially socialism. I mean, you know, if Cuba becomes capitalist tomorrow, these same people are going to be the opposition and they're going to want to bring back the old regime. Now, that doesn't necessarily make socialism good, but to have so many people actually fight for it means that uh, in the eyes of these people, it hasn't exactly been defeated yet. And, you know, I've been seeing a lot of people going like, oh, yeah, Cuba is a failed state, socialism is a failed system, whatever else. Well, here's the thing. If you go back on the history of liberal democracy, and capitalism, liberal capitalist democracy, uh, with the sort of the track record and the sort of the the leniency that is afforded to uh, socialism and socialist regimes, we would be considering today uh, liberal democracy and capitalism to have failed in the 1800s, in the 1815s. And yet we don't. We don't because these people kept fighting for their little failed system, quote-unquote, and now they have it proliferated all over the world. And there is one country that stubbornly opposes that, and they're trying to, to, um, they're trying to completely destroy that country right now. They're trying to take it over and implement it there as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say that you could say that liberal democracy has failed, um, not in the sense of, it's, it's clearly not failed in the sense of it's, it hasn't died out. Uh, but I think it has uh, failed in the sense that it has become distorted. It's not; it really does not share all that much with the initial vision of, you know, people like American founding fathers or John Locke or those kind of people. Um, I think they they would not have they would not have liked what they saw now. Um, so in that sense, it has failed. Um, and this is kind of back to what you were saying a little bit ago about liberal democracy. Um, one, one of the, th or, I mean, we've been talking about that kind of throughout the entire episode. Um, and one of the things that you see a lot is, uh, and this is sort of segueing into Haiti. Um, so of course their uh, their president was assassinated, and what you see on these news outlets is a lot of people uh, talking about kind of how you know, he was destroying democracy. And, you know, you, you know, you can say kind of what you want about, you know, the, the quality of him as a president, what he did, if he did horrible things or good things, is kind of irrelevant, to me at least. Uh, what is really important is the glorification, almost deification, of li liberal democracy. Um, and not, not just, not, even the system so much as the name uh, by by these news outlets or 
politicians. Um, and when I say that, not, not the system, but the name, it doesn't really matter if this is like a healthy democracy where, you know, maybe you do have uh, heavy decentralization, you know, something perhaps more like, you know, old classical liberals liked. Um, that's not important to these people. What's really important is that you have something that is, you know, called a democracy. So if you have people, people voting and, you know, supposedly there's not much of voter fraud, then that works. You know, if you have something like America, you know, not to say that America is a terrible place, but certainly there are issues like Thomas was discussing with the way that democracy currently exists in America. Um, but that's to them really just as good as, you know, a much more form of democracy. No, um, you know, I think that's a that's an all right point. That's a very good point uh, about the the issue. Uh, now that we've uh, gotten over to Haiti, I mean, you know, we also have uh, alleged American ties there about the assassins. And, you know, to put that aside for a minute and talk about the issue that you brought up uh, regarding liberal democracy, I mean, I don't doubt that, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, James Madison and George Washington had amazing uh, intentions. And they were all visionaries and they were very, uh, um, very genius people. Uh, and they, you know, they wanted to create a system where they genuinely believed that liberty would flourish and that there would be rule of law and everything else that they were concerned about. Now, these people as a class, you know, the, these were the sort of the, the mercantile uh, and landowning classes of the colonies. And that in itself sort of colored their outlook on the uh, on democracy and how they, the sort of the, the republic should look like. But, uh, you know, we don't live in that reality anymore. That's the, the sort of the base part that I want people to keep here. The, the issue isn't whether George Washington or uh, James Madison or Benjamin Franklin wrote a good constitution and they put in all the good parts and they had this vision about America. The issue is what is America now? Mm -hmm. And I mean, what we're seeing, and I think uh, very few people would even disagree, is we're seeing an America where the erosion of freedom has become essentially the country's favorite pastime. In the past 30 years, I mean, America has steadily decreased any civil or political rights that people had in the country. I mean, it would be a topic in and of itself to open the, the whole can of worms and actually look at the specific instances where American freedom was uh, eroded for the ordinary citizen. I mean, we can talk about things like the Patriot Act, or we could go to different things like how, you know, the, the DNC and the RNC sort of filter out candidates that are not establishment uh, approved. And how, you know, they kind of failed to do that with Trump, but even Trump himself essentially found his hands bound within the presidency. And I'm not one to say that uh, Trump was even a particularly good president. And, or um, I'm not so much of a fan anymore as I used to be when I was uh, much younger and I was on the on the complete MAGA train. Mm -hmm. But you know, when when you put it down, mm -hmm. as well. yeah. See, I mean, when you put it down, really, uh, the issue is one. He tried to revert uh, America back to an older form of sort of liberal capitalism, a form that was very patriotic, a form that was very concerned with uh, what. 
America as a country was getting from the world back from the time of the nation states, essentially. And, you know, they, they shut him out for that. They made him out to be a fascist for that. They made sure he could never get elected again. Uh, he, they made him twice impeached and his name became a synonym for the devil, essentially. Uh, if, if Trump cannot return uh, the country back to a, an older form of liberalism, capitalism or uh, you know, patriotism, then what hope does anybody else have to reform this system? These people aren't willing to even move an inch away from the sort of the position they've set out. And let's not be naive here, you know, the politicians don't just wake up in the morning and they think to themselves, oh yeah, you know what, I think these policies are the best policies for the country. You know, I just, I had a, a divine spark from God, you know, he came down to me in a dream and I decided, yeah, you know what, these are the policies. You know, he gave them down like a, he gave me a tablet like a Moses and you know, that's what I'm going to implement. That's not happening. These people essentially take their orders from somewhere else. They have all these NGOs pushing different things. They have the, the PACs and the super PACs. They have the billionaires and the millionaires funding their campaigns. I mean, that's what really forms their political campaign slogans. And when you actually expand your mind to the sort of the political philosophy that exists out there, the, the wide variety that exists out there, you'll notice that the sort of the acceptable overtone window of views that exist in the political mainstream is tiny. It's super tiny and very shallow. It's essentially about whether we're going to have a 12% tax rate or a 14% tax rate or a 16% tax rate. And then whether we're going to uh, increase funding for uh, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, whether we're going to decrease funding for it, whether we're going to keep funding the same. I mean, that, that's what uh, political debates are essentially right now. Any other high-minded ideas about conservatism or progressivism or liberalism, they're tossed to the side. Uh, the question there is how gradually people want to move to progress. With the conservatives being like, okay, you know what, let's calm down and, you know, let's not do these very hasty things. And the progressives being like, yeah, just we're going to speed run it. We're going to implement everything in like record pace. And the, the liberal in the center sort of being like, okay, yeah, we're going to implement some reforms now, some reforms later, but at the end of the day, nobody disputes. You know, when you look, um, when, when you look at the conservative movement now, I mean, I, I'm seeing a lot of outrage, for example, about Brandy Love, the, the porn star, yeah? Uh, people are angry because she's branding herself a conservative and she's a porn star now, uh, let me remind you. So, I mean, how does that work exactly? Because, you know, this clearly shows that the conservative movement is literally conservative in name only. There, there's nothing conservative about it because they're not even trying to preserve a sort of a traditional understanding of sexuality or of marriage or, uh, you know, of having children. So, you know, we, we've literally descended down to the, you know, lower, lower taxes and guns, uh, sort of uh, conservative libertarianism. Not even that, that much uh, of them. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I saw this just kind of <laughs> a fun illustration of that I saw on Instagram. You know, they're coming out with all of these new uh, LG flags and whatever. And I saw this, it was like conservative 2021. It was like, let's go back to tradition. It was like the normal rainbow flag. Yeah, it's insane, it's isn't like, it? Yeah. No, this isn't to say that everybody who 
you know, as a cons American conservative is like this necessarily, but it's it's where the movement overall is headed. Yeah. If that's kinda, the thing. Oh, sorry. I just kind of did you want to? It's like ten years ago, maybe. Mm hmm. I mean, ten years ago, the conservative movement in America was much different. I mean, I was much less involved in politics uh, than I am now, but still I can tell that there is a difference and I don't know completely what uh, Greek politics are like, but I'm, I'm guessing that there have been similar changes in Europe and Greece. It's the same thing. It's essentially the, the, the same damn thing. I mean, we have um, the ruling party here is uh, the, the, sort of the center-right standard conservative party and i mean our our leader our political leader is is just a, a neoliberal i mean he he's essentially like buddies with macron and joe biden because they they differ nowhere in policy you could argue oh, joe biden's a bit more of a lefty or uh, macron is a a bit more of a centrist and you know maybe mitsotakis here that's his uh, last name he's um you know he's a bit of a more of a righty but at the end of the day, their opinions don't differ. Their opinion is essentially, you know, we have this market, we gotta make the, the, uh, the millionaires and the billionaires and the sort of upper class, we gotta make them consolidate wealth faster. And, you know, to that end, we're going to retain artificial oligopolies and we're gonna make the barrier to entry for different industries much higher. And, you know, we're, we're just going to cut some taxes and we're going to say some nonsense about family and community and, uh, you know, uh, the country and uh, whatever else. And, you know, we're just going to end it there. Just some rhetoric to appease all the patriots to get their guns out and to, I don't know, go like, yeah, but no, no actual policies, no, no real policies. Anything that was passed by the left beforehand, we're going to retain it. That, that's the thing. That's the just problem with conservatives. They never repeal. They always retain. Mm -hmm. They always keep these things. Yeah, you just can't briefly, win. Well, yeah. I mean, there is that one thing about repealing. I mean, yeah, it's like the conservatives are always playing defense on the next thing, but they're never actually playing offense on like the things that have that they really should repeal and old things. But uh, to to briefly go back to your point about the, the politician talking about community and family, like these these words have been uh, those are some butchered words I think um, yeah. they've really been completely bastardized in modern societies you know what what people call community today is is truly much groups of people that never be you know, a true community the Philadelphia community That's, so there's no community uh, there's an atmosphere maybe in Philadelphia but there's you know millions of people or even hundreds of thousands or whatever they can't really be in a true community and then if you go down a step on the ladder what, what do people call family what people call family can probably best be described as community what what is truly community you know people call family, you know maybe a, you know, local groups you know do activities that truly is you know maybe a weak community but it's, and then if you go down done the step um, more step on the well there is not really even a, a term for more because family but all but dissolved you know i completely agree with you on that sidetrack side 
No, 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 it's all right. You know, I completely agree with you on that. And uh, really the issue is, I mean, even, even when you go back to like the, the days of the 50s and the 60s, where community was already dissolved at large because, um, because people were moving around, they were getting jobs in the city, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, it was a sort of a, mm. a general trend in the West in general. Mm-hmm. And nuclear family was incentivized instead of the sort of the extended family that included grandparents and, you know, and cousins and uncles and whatever else. And when you look uh, at its basis, though, I mean, these people, they would uh, move to the suburbs and they'd have like barbecues with their neighbors and their kids would grow up in like these safe sort of suburb areas and whatever else. There was some community, there was some interconnectivity and, you know, these people, they would form little clubs and groups and whatever else and they they would meet on Saturdays and, you know, they do their barbecues again and that was uh, something you could call community, at least to some degree. That doesn't exist today. Mm. I mean, you can't uh, can't find 20, 30-something-year-olds that know their neighbors in like some random apartment building in the middle of nowhere in some city. That, That doesn't happen. Family is out of the question, you know, people have uncles they've never spoken to, for example, or, you know, they have cousins they've never seen. Uh, maybe you'll see them at some family gathering, rarely, but that's, that's the end of the, uh, that's the end of it. You know, you see them there, you say hi, and that's about it. You don't keep a connection, you don't have their phone number, they can't come to you in an emergency or aid. That's part yeah. of... Um, you know, I don't want to rumble too much about this because, you know, we have the, the other issues to discuss. But, um, you know, that's part of the problem I have with this sort of uh, fault, faulty sort of uh, false binary between the state and the, uh, the market. I mean, one of the reasons I am a communitarian, and I think that you're also a communitarians for a similar reason, I imagine, uh, is because we recognize that there's a third hidden option. You don't just relegate everything to the state and the market. There is the community, or there used to be the community at some point in the past. Now, it it has essentially been dissolved in favor of both the state and the market. And, you know, why did people not need welfare programs in the 1800s? Well, I mean, if you you broke your leg somewhere, you know, working at construction or whatever, you know, you'd go to your cousin's house, and, you know, your cousin's wife would, like, I don't know, brew you a soup and give it to you so you could recover more easily and you could stay there. Or, you know, you'd, um, you'd be harbored by your uh, brother-in-law or uh, you'd live in the house of your, uh, your uncle. You know, you had these family ties, these extended family ties, and they formed a gigantic sort of support network for individuals. And then when we broke mm-hmm. that down, that's when people needed welfare. Because, you know, th- their parents would die and they would they would suddenly be alone in the world essentially yeah, i didn't realize how much how much that's gone downhill it's kind yeah. of yeah i guess i kind of bear some responsibility myself i think we all do yeah i'd say so you know and when you have fear that further incentivizes um leaving behind the community because there's the need for them on a material sense, the, the need for them is left, uh, but in a, you know, in a emotional sense, for lack of a word, the need is still there. I mean, emotional is, does not capture everything that I mean to say by that, but you I'm kind sure, of get yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think back to what you're saying about 
kind of community versus state market. Uh, kind of point I'd like to make is that the form of government you have and market you have and all of that is much less significant as long as it leaves people alone enough and those people are willing to create strong communities. Um, so what I mean is if the community is good and the government isn't destroying the communities, then the government doesn't really matter much. Yeah, it's like, you know, but... Sorry. No, no, go, Mucky. Alright, it's like, when you're obsessed with, like, individual rights and being left alone, that that's corrosive to the community, and you end up having those values um, not realized. It's almost like you get the inverse of the way you act, not counting the uh, factor of, like, what you say. Because, like, if you really, like become like a community like builder and everything that will probably lead to more like actual liberty but it's kind of like you kind of have to respect it and not just seek it just purely in for itself or normally that's kind of a corrosive kind of a kind of a bitter attitude bitter is not the right word but purely as an ends it doesn't really work I think, I think I uh, yeah, uh, all of these points, they, they tie in very perfectly to the point we're, we're all trying to make. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of going to unify the point here so that it gets across to the, the viewers as best as, uh, the, you know, the, the listeners as best as possible. Uh, essentially, you know, uh, the community and the, the sort of the extended family, they have, um, they have expectations of you. I mean, they love you, they cherish you, they help you. But, you know, they want you to be better. They want you to do your best. You know, they want you to mm -hmm. stand on your own two feet. And that's what they're there to help you. The reason we have this trend today where it's like, uh, oh, screw you, dad. You told me to not wear a piercing, you know, and uh, I, you didn't let me do that tattoo. And you didn't let me, like, uh, you know, dye my hair pink. So now I'm, I'm going to move out into the big city and I'm going to make it on my own. I mean, the reason you have this sort of mentality it's because you have welfare and it's because you've relegated all these powers to the sort of the state and the market. People are essentially want to escape having to answer to their own families and to their own communities for their actions. And, you know, they, they logically turn to the other two sort of pillars of power, the state and the market. And, you know, the, the more right wing leaning sort of people, you know, they end up becoming libertarians and they, they entrust themselves to markets. And the more left wing people, the, the more progressive types, they entrust themselves to the state instead of their family. But, but at, at the, the fundamental level, they both know that they're doing things wrong. And when, they, when their family points to them doing some things wrong, I mean, not every family is good. There are abusive families, you know, of course. You know, I have to add that addendum in there so, you know, nobody comes here and says, yeah, but what if, what if a father is beating up his daughter? I mean, okay, yeah, nobody's saying that's a good thing, man. But that's not how most families are like, you know. But yeah, you know, these people are trying to essentially escape the judgment of their families. And that's a, that's a bit egotistical in itself, in a lot of ways, because a lot of the things these people want to do are very stupid things that young people do. Stupid things that don't actually last, that don't actually help them become better people. They just want to do them for the moment. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's part of being young to sort of experiment with a couple of things. 
and uh, sort of adventure on your own to a degree. But at the end of the day, you know, if somebody tells you, look, this is ridiculous, maybe you should actually sort of try to find out why that might be ridiculous. Yeah, that's what I have to say. Yeah, and I think that that point you're making about libertarians, is, it kind of ties into what you were saying. Um, it was a recent story post, some of you might have seen it, about, I believe it was uh, progressive, pragmatic libertarians, or it might not have been progressive, but that was kind of a similar term. Yeah, um, uh, and pra pragmatic and idealistic libertarians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. And the point of that basically was that, you know, the I, the idealistic libertarians are kind of probably the kind of the people that would just, you know, think, well, they kind of assume that, you know, just these rights appear out of nowhere. Uh, they might be the people that would just, you know, run off into the city and, you know, rely on the market and, you know, kind of forsake all these, you know, bonds of family and whatever. Uh, whereas the pragmatic libertarians kind of understand that those are, uh, that liberties only come from some existing structure. Uh, I mean, that's kind of briefly, briefly what the idea was there. Yeah, from from what I'd like to, uh, I often call the sort of the fountain of morality, the the font of morality. You know, the that you need a sort of a moral, um, um, a moral standard to which you can hold people. Yeah. And uh, this this has uh, died with uh, communities, essentially, because there, there's nobody to hold you accountable today. I mean, the, the stranger who sees you on the subway one time isn't going to hold you accountable. And because the, that stranger cannot hold you accountable, the people who end up holding you accountable are police officers. And this ties into another point I wanted to make. Uh, we, we've sort of um, created a very horrific state of affairs that actually does lead to a police state by destroying communities. Uh, I mean, Patrick uh, Denin talks about it in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, as well. Um, but essentially, if you had like a, a village drunk, you know, in the 1800s, you know, you'd have some sort of local sheriff or constable or whatever the rank is in different places of the world. And, you know, he, he'd lock him in a little, you know, a wooden cell in the local sort of, um, you know, not exactly police station, but the local sort of sheriff's office. He'd lock him in a cell for the night so he didn't, you know, cause brawls or whatever. And, you know, I mean, he knew the guy, you know, he, he was Bob the police officer. Then there's like Jim the drunk. And, you know, they know each other, you know, they, they grew up in the same area. So, you know, he, he'd be like, hey, you know, Jimmy, come on out, you know, just, you know, now you've sobered up. Okay, go home. Well, you don't have that now. If, if somebody catches you uh, drunk, uh, you're going in for like... Uh, for like drunken assault or whatever else or you know uh, anything you do under the influence you know you're gonna get locked up in a precinct you don't know you're gonna be dealt with by police officers who are complete strangers to you uh, this sort of depersonalization uh, harms human beings it bothers human beings i mean it's it's part of the abstraction of uh, living in a sort of a nation state of living in a, in a supposed political entity that is the same entity, but you have like millions and millions of people just living in it and living in the same place without knowing each other. You know, it's part of the, mm -hmm. the, the, the abstraction necessary for there to be a sort of a very large scale unifying uh, phenomenon, which is why I speak about decentralization, because uh, the more abstractions you make, 
the less serviceable your system actually becomes to human beings. Uh, one of the best things, uh, you know, one of the reasons Denmark is such a great country or Finland is such a great country is because, well, Denmark has like uh, 5 million people in it. Finland, the same thing. So you have 5 million people, especially in Finland, you know, you have 5 million people spread out in a, in a very vast area and only some concentrations on like the southern part and the cities specifically. And, you know, the government can work with that. The government, that, that's a manageable sort of level of people. And, you know, you also have to talk about other things like cultural homogeneity. You know, uh, most people in Finland are uh, locals. They're not immigrants, although that is changing. And same thing in Denmark. And that, that's part of the reason why Denmark, for example, has a very restrictive immigration policy, because they understand this, uh, this rule uh, pretty much. So you have these people who are united in customs. They're united in uh, sort of traditional religion, although many of them don't practice the religion anymore. They still have the sort of the presuppositions of the religion ingrained into their psyche and the sort of the moral outlook of the religion, even if they don't practice anymore. And you have all these people and they, they kind of know what to expect. And they live in small townships in some areas and in villages. And, you know, that, 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 essentially they're dealing with people they know. That's the thing. You guys yeah. are here? Um, kind of going back to the police state thing, I think when, when you don't have kind of the gentle authority of family and church when you have people kind of leaving leaving those institutions they're stuck with the authority of the police yeah they're sort of the hard harsh authority of the state pretty yeah, the, much yeah the outsourcing of kind of responsibility and liability yeah, yeah exactly no i know we have we strayed well off topic and this is yeah been, I don't, think I, that, I don't that. think that that was necessarily too bad because it was a, I think it was worth having discussion, but, uh, no, me neither. you know, so I think it was definitely uh, worth having, but, um, I, before we run too long, it would be probably to, uh, get to some of these other things that you would want to talk yeah, yeah. to, sure. that we'd wanted to talk with you about. Um, so particularly the German, French, and Italians are all having these elections to elect, uh, you know, presidents or prime ministers or uh, these national elections. So uh, I don't know if you have any opening statements about that or if you just want to jump kind of right into discussion. Uh, sure. Or yeah, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, you know, we we finished that, uh, we wrapped up that point about the family and community pretty well, I'd say. And it really, um, uh, it really laid the point there. And I think that's a good uh, increasing, that's a good sort of, um, um, how do I put this now? Uh, that's a good, uh, I guess, uh, that's a good uh, conversation, sort of an expansion of the conversation we had uh, in the previous uh, time we spoke. And uh, besides that, I'd say, well, we, we spoke about Haiti, we spoke about uh, Cuba, uh, Haiti not so much, we didn't cover it super well, but we spoke about Haiti and Cuba, and uh, essentially, I mean, what I'm expecting there is for them to become like every other South American country, as it is right now, and, you know, Central American country and Caribbean country, you know, sort of uh, impoverished and having all the problems that... Uh, characterize the, the global south, either economic or political problems. 